Got me a breakfast sandwich. Stuffing it in my face. It's made of sourdough and cheese and eggs. So good. My wife is awesome. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support? High performance? All backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery service that goes far beyond letting you do continuous deployment. Snap's first-class support for deployment pipelines lets you push any healthy build to multiple environments automatically and on-demand. This means with Snap, you can deploy your staging environment today, verify it works, and later deploy the exact same build to production. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many, many more. You can also use Snap to push your gems to Ruby Gems. Best of all, setting up your build is simple and intuitive. Try Snap free for 30 days. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 158 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avi Grimm. Hello, hello. David Brady. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, or on the International Space Station, 32 times. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have no guest and no topic. I'm just kidding. So we we had a half-hour discussion about what we were going to talk about, and we're going to, I guess we're going to air some of our dirty laundry and talk about some of the things that at least are generally accepted to be not the best things to do or that we're not doing that are the best things to do and talk about why we do that. Um, in my case, it's all laziness. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I like it when a confession becomes kind of of heresy and then you find out that everyone around you is also committing that particular heresy and you realize that, oh, you know what? Maybe the emperor really does have no clothes. Yeah. So before we get going too far, I want to just briefly announce that Midwest.io, it's a conference in St. Louis, I believe. Kansas uh, City. Kansas City. Kansas City, Missouri. That's what I meant. Trying <laughs> <laughs> to get they, some angry emails. They, uh, <laughs> so anyway, they're putting Those on this conference. Those people all look the same to me. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're putting on this conference, and they are offering a ticket to one of our listeners. So in order to get the ticket, um, we're just going to give it to one random listener who does the following if you tweet with the hashtag RRMidwest and you tell us what your favorite episode of Ruby Rogues is to this point and also mention just a quick thanks to the Twitter account for the for the conference. Midwest, which, which is, is at Midwest or at Midwest.io. There you go. So if you if you tweet with all of those things, then we will put you in the drawing and uh, we'll pick a winner. I'm not sure when we're going to end that, so do it soon. And if you win, you'll get to see me talk about Bash at Midwest.io. Oh, crud. Are we eligible to enter? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, so I, I'm biased. I'm biased because I'm speaking at this conference, but uh, it does look really cool. It's a multidisciplinary conference, so it's it's uh, bringing together people from all different programming backgrounds, which I think is pretty neat. It's neat to see more conferences like that. Yeah, so if you're, if you're an Avdi fanboy like Dave and I are, then get on that. <laughs> right on. So I'll go ahead and start this off. I mean, sometimes I write tests without code or code without tests. <laughs> Can I tell you I how tired I so am? Much. Sometimes, sometimes I just do the T. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, oh. and so and sometimes I actually will write the code and then I'll go back like a few days later and write the test because I know someone's going to look at my code. It really depends. A lot of times this comes out of a spike, so it's something that I'm not really sure even how it's supposed to work well enough to write a test for it. And so I'll just wind up spiking it and then I'll leave it. And sometimes I'm just being, I'm, I literally am just being lazy and uh, I'm, I'm tired and I, you know, I just want to write the code. And uh, the tests feel a little bit onerous, and so I just I just don't do it. There's a related pattern to that when you're actually doing TDD, where uh, I, the, I call the pattern red green eh, <laughs> right? Where you, you you get to red fast, you make it work green, but it's nasty, and then you go eh, you know, you ship it. I'll refactor it later. Yeah, I have done yeah. the green refactor. I'm usually pretty good about going back and cleaning it up after I'm done. You guys never do the red, green, eh, do you? <clears throat> never. No, not I, me. I don't always get to green. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a confession for you. I, uh, yeah. Just like a night or two ago, I uh, I commented out an entire test because for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why it wouldn't pass on my CI server. <laughs> I do that all the time. Uh, I've done that too. There's a a point where you look at a test that just will not pass and you've been fighting with it for like four hours and you can't get your head around why it's not passing. And finally you just say, you know what? This test is no longer worth it. And you, you take it out and you write yourself a note to come back and f understand the code maybe a little better at some point in the future. Yeah. I mean, and it, you know, it, it's kind of a different thing when, the test won't pass and the code doesn't work right. But you got to ask yourself what the value is if the code is working right and the test won't. Right. The test won't pass because you're probably just doing something wrong in the test or you're like you have some sort of state bleeding over in the tests or something like that. I just want that sound bite from uh, Lord of the Rings. You shall not pass. <laughs> the one I use more often in that case is fly, you fools. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I, I think the value proposition there is really valuable to think about. I mean, for me, I have this other thing going on, you know, where I'm working on something for a client. And so I really don't want to have to explain to them, oh, well, I spent four hours trying to figure out how to make this test pass. As opposed to, like, <laughs> building something that earns them money. Right. You, you know, Generally, they prefer you do the earn the money thing. And so, you know, if I spend a half yeah. hour on it, they're like, mm, mm, you know, they can, they, they'll eat that and that's fine. And it may, you know, made it pass and everything. But yeah. So usually there's that external force. If it's on my own project and I really just think there's some meat there that's going to make me learn something, well, there's a value proposition for you. But otherwise, yeah, I've, I've done that. Yep. There's I've a, a lot of code without te tests lately. It's, it's kind of bugging me. Yeah. Oh, <gasps> I, so I did a big spike yesterday where I was dealing with the Google Spreadsheets API, the Google Drive API, and I was just tinkering with it and just trying to see if I could make things work. And when I am tinkering in that mode, I never test. I don't TDD. I don't test after. I'm just fiddling around, running stuff at the console, seeing if data comes back. You know, I've got a web browser open looking at the spreadsheet to see if it's getting its values changed. And it feels a lot like eighth grade where I'm just kind of running stuff and seeing what happens. But yeah. you are testing. You are testing. It's just that you're manually testing. Yeah. 
Well, the other thing is is that I like the tests in the traditional sense, like unit tests or uh, acceptance tests, which a lot of people call integration tests, or actual integration tests where you're just, you know, testing that two things talk nicely to each other. I like those in the sense that they're repeatable and, you know, somebody else touching the code can run it and make sure that they didn't goof it. But, I mean, if you're tinkering, if this is stuff that isn't going to go to production or you don't know is going to go to production, heck, yeah, you know? You don't need to write tests for it. Just just get your head around mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's yeah. a mental exercise at that point. It's not production code. Yeah. And actually, this one was, a I would almost say, a political exercise because we needed to show that we could do it. And so I tinkered with it. I got it running. And then I took a screenshot of it and sent it to the client. And, and you know, and the columns were all wrong. And I basically said, this is napkin math. All I can do right now is I can prove to you that I can write to a spreadsheet. Yeah, that that's a little bit dangerous, though, because I've had a few of those where it's like, look, this is not for production. And guess what? Well, fortunately, the client uh, in question listens to this podcast. So, hi, Lance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I really did come into this uh, as fresh-faced as I told you I had. I was going to. So, I actually have been pushing some of this code to production. <gasps> Do you have no, anyone else working right? on it? I got I got to clean all this diet no, coke monitor now. Yeah, <laughs> it is just me. So there's that. Although I don't like thinking about it in those terms. I don't like yeah. thinking this is always going to be just me. I I like to assume that it's an app that's going to last long enough that it won't always be me. But well, um, other, you know what's what's really funny is is uh, as as longtime listeners of the podcast know, I despise debuggers, and I've actually been doing um, a lot of development in RubyMine lately, and I've been doing a lot of trace the like put a, a breakpoint in and see if what I expect to happen is happening. And one uh, of us, one of us. Very strange. I <laughs> I remember doing that way back in like the pre TDD days, back in my C plus plus days. Um, mm-hmm. and I haven't done that for a long time, but. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't like doing only that style of development, but occasionally yeah. it's an interesting change from from the uh, the test-driven style. Mm-hmm. I will say when it comes to some of this stuff, like, so I'm pretty serious about TDD being a design discipline. I really do think about, like, for me, that's kind of the, the principal reason that I do it, which I realize is not the same as a lot of a lot of people. A lot of people think of the, I guess, the, the principal gain that they get from it as being regression tests. Which is fine. It's a great way of assembling regression tests. But since I, I really do think of it as a design thing, I'm not as worried about growing my corpus of tests. And particularly if, if I know something works, like if I have experimental evidence that something works, I don't feel super compelled to go back and write comprehensive tests for it. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously that, that, that may well come back to bite me when I try to refactor it. And so I might do like just in time tests for it, you know, right before I refa- decide it needs to be refactored. But, you know, if I know experimentally, if I uh, threw something together and I know experimentally that it works, well, it's already designed. And since I think of TDD as kind of a design thing more than anything else, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go and, and write some tests to design something that's already designed. It might not be the best design, but it's designed. I came across a really interesting kind of a ripple in testing thought because I used to bang on all the time about, yes, you should test your private methods. If you, and if, you know, if it can possibly break, you should test it. And people, you know, the counter argument is you should test your private methods through the public interface. And my reply to that is, well, but that's a level of indirection. That's a level of impedance, impedance mismatch. 
and you can go around the table and around the table and around the table. And I finally found out that the people that are saying never test your private methods are almost exclusively talking about regression testing because they want to be able to change the private method and not break a fragile test framework. Right. Where people like me that are talking about wanting to test the private methods are people who they have no idea how they're going to solve this problem. They're venturing into the deep, dark jungle, and they want to use their testing framework as headlights into the right. Merc right ahead. And boy, you do. You want to test private methods. You want to test every little piece because, I mean, you're cutting gears out on the metal shop floor, and you want to assert that that gear works correctly before you stick it in the machine that you don't know if it's good, is going to work at the end of the day. Right. But at the end of the day... You take, and, and that's kind of how I finally spiritually reached this level of acceptance with myself of when I am driving the design forward, I will test private methods. And then at the end of the day, I rip those tests out and I throw them away because right. they are not only worthless as regression tests, but they actually have negative value. They will cost you money if you leave them in the, in the code base. Yes. I think it's a really important realization. I, and I feel very little compunction about throwing tests away. Do you ever refactor them into the public interface tests? Sometimes. If a test, I get halfway through and I realize this isn't just a private method, this is actually something that has to be exposed, then sure, that, that test will percolate up. Yeah, I, I wonder, though, sometimes, like, if you are breaking a call that does a lot of things down into, you know, the smaller test to get it written, and then they have side effects, you could put those assertions into the assertions on the, the higher level uh, public method, and then just trash the private methods test. Does that make sense? I, it does, and I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit. I, I could be wrong, but to me that feels like something fragile. It feels like now if I go in and change the way that this class modifies its eternal, internal state or has, if I modify its side effects, my test suite could break even though the, the class is still working correctly. However, I don't run into that very often, and the reason why is because by about the 15th private method that you're testing on a class, I start to realize, I think this class is doing too much. <laughs> and yeah, and I, I suddenly discover that I've been building a god object. I've been building, you know, I, I, I started with a script file, I created an application class that does everything, and lo and behold, there's actually, I've actually caught myself on this and broken the class into, you know, extracted classes from it and actually extracted six other classes from the class that I was working with. And I'm like, oh, that's why it hurts so bad. And once I extracted them, the classes that were extracted, they now have public interfaces and those have to be tested. And right. so those tests survived. And so anything that was causing like a side effect or was having like an intermediate result I usually have been able to design that away by extracting it out and, and testing it in isolation and then testing the connection between the two. I think I do basically the same thing. I just come at it from a slightly different angle than you. Mm -hmm. Like I never test private methods as a rule. What that really just means is that, you know, I test public methods and I own basically only extract private methods with some exceptions. I pretty much, if I have a private method, it was extracted out of a public method that I had already tested. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, tested by definition but then i think i i probably just extract things out earlier than you do um mm -hmm. because once once i get to that yeah. point where it's like wow i really want to you know i really want to reach into that private method to design something i'm like okay so that's that means it's time to extract something out yeah which brings me to another another interesting topic that i've been thinking about lately because yeah. 
So I've already ranted a little bit about how things like extractions aren't as easy in Ruby as they could be. I did that like a couple of weeks ago, I think. When we were kicking Ruby's tires. <laughs> yeah. But so I won't, I won't go into that too much again, but I, I will talk about one piece of that puzzle that I don't know if I really talked about a lot, which is that we've kind of settled on this convention, at least most people I know have settled on this convention of one class per file, one file per class and one test file per class. And that kind of sets the the barrier to extraction a, a bit high, I've, I've started to think. Really? Um, because I hate creating a new test file mm. uh, for my classes, depending on the project. The, I mean, even if I have even if I have some, some tools for like creating that file automatically using the file name, you know, as a guide, usually doesn't put the right boilerplate in because this project has slightly different test boilerplate or something. And so I have to I, there's usually some boilerplate I have to rewrite or some test hel helpers that I have to copy over or something, stuff like that. There's also just the fact that like a lot of times I'll I'll extract out an object and then I'll go through like three quick revisions of my name for it because it takes me a little while to settle on a name mm -hmm. for it that I like. And so I'm constantly renaming the, the, the file. I'm renaming the file that it's in. I'm renaming the test file. You're naming the, renaming the variable that you called it in the other tests? Yeah. And this is, and this, you know, is kind of starting to make, I think it's putting negative pressure on my writing separate tests for that separate object because I'm just mm -hmm. like, screw it. You know, I'm going to put this in the debugger and see, make sure it's working right. You, you could just um, do what my mom did, and that was just say all of the names. So one of us would come home and, Chusty Berger, St Chuck, <laughs> underscore spec. <laughs> <laughs> all the things, underscore spec, dot rb. I, I was thinking that too. Avdi just has one file. It's the spec helper, and it just tests everything. Yeah. <laughs> I watched an interesting an interesting talk recently that kind of questioned the dogma of one test file per class. And it kind of struck a chord with me because of this, because, you know, I don't it's I, I don't know. It's extra work. It's extra noise. So um, what direction would you and move? Would you... Uh, well, what I've I've just started doing um, and don't everybody all go do this, because like I said, I just started doing it. But I've started just creating a test file for a feature that I'm working on. And actually mixing together in that file higher level and lower level tests and not, you know, some tests reference multiple objects, some tests reference just a few. But it's not like this is the test file for this class. It's this is the test file for listing episodes and there's some mm -hmm. acceptance test in there. And then I'm probably going to be throwing some tests against the uh, the data mappers in there as well and probably some other ones. Yeah, I uh, completely agree, DHH. I, I think the lower level tests just aren't as helpful. <laughs> I kind of like I, that I idea. Start, I do start with with higher level tests pretty much invariably. But yeah, okay. it just keeps me in one test file while I'm working on, on one uh, feature. Well, so, I, I think it's interesting because then you're dealing with the series of concerns. And I guess the interesting thing for me about this is that I find that there's a disconnect sometimes between like the feature that the client is thinking about or I'm thinking about if it's my app. And then, you know, getting down into the concerns that the class has. And so right. by grouping mm -hmm. everything together by, you know, this is, uh, you know, user management or, you know, user sign-in, you know, if you want to get more specific into a feature, something that could be an agile story, you know, then I can think about the things that really matter to that. And I may be testing my classes across multiple feature specs, but in the end, you know, I know that they all interact the way I expect them to. Because the feature spec passed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like this notion that when we, we write a class file in Ruby, at least 
this is what I do, and, and I see this a lot. You start at the top of the class file with like the big meta stuff, like modules that you're including, uh, active record DSL methods, like belongs to, has many, validates, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you have your initializer, uh, your constructor, and then you have class methods, and then you have your public API, and then you have your private API. And you, you just kind of move from this really high level at the top of the class. By the time you're at the bottom of the class file, you're dealing with very tiny things. Now, clearly, I'm describing classes that are not written to conform to Sandy Metz's idea of 25 lines of code for your class file, right? But if you've got this really big class, you have this, this almost this gradient slope from, of scope, uh, from broad to narrow. And what you're describing, Avdi, sounds a lot like that. Like you start at this, you, you do put the broad stuff at the top, right? Because otherwise we can't be friends. Right. <laughs> okay. No, no, yeah. yeah. Like I've got an acceptance test at the top, and one of the things I like about RSpec is that I can I can do things like I can tag different, you know, I can tag one describe block with okay, the, like VCR true, DB true, email true. Um, so like this is a you know the turning on all the the various test helpers and features mm-hmm. um, that are needed for that level of test, and then I can have other ones in the same file that don't use all those features. Nice. So. This leads to another confession. Dave mentioned Sandy Metz's rule. I write a lot of long methods. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm all for extracting a method. Like if, I ha- if I'm if i looping over a collection of something and I'm going to call the same thing against all of them, then, yeah, I'll extract that into a method. But if it's like a list of files that I need to deal with or something like that, and and I have to do something slightly different with each one, I'll put 10 statements in there for all 10 files. And, you know, I think doing like an array or a hash dot each and then, you know, putting the details in there like that, that that's just gross to me. It's just I don't like it because uh, it just, I don't know, I, I it just doesn't it, feel natural to me. It means your method name is awful. <laughs> so, you know, if it's extract file to whatever, you know, then... yeah. Then I'm just extract file to whatever, and then I call it with file one, and then I call it again with file two, and call it again with file three, and I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah. When I'm writing code that's very exploratory, like spiky sort of code, and I'm testing it manually, a lot of times it makes the most sense to basically just lay it out as a script. Uh, Martin Fowler might call it a transaction script if you want to get fancy about it, but you know, I might just have it might literally be a script, you know, just one file with a series of statements in it. And uh, the most logical thing to do with that once it works, uh, if you're not going to throw it away and write it over again, is to just throw that into a method. And there you go. And I've been thinking about a lot about like rules for doing that well, because I've been finding myself doing that. And one of them is, is log a lot. Hmm. Mm hmm. So like when I'm, I'm developing that way, very exploratory, just running a, basically a transas- transaction script over and over to make sure it, and developing it, you know, one line at a time. I, you know, I, I make the request and then check that, you know, make sure that the requ- request is 200. Then I take the body and then I parse the body. Then I try to extract something out of the body and so on. You know, I'll add a line at a time and each time I'll just see what the end product is and go forward. If the end product came out right, just, you know, run it manually running it over again. And, and, you know, one of the, some of the rules that I've been kind of coming up with for that are uh, log a lot, log everything so that I have a good idea of what's happening at each step of the way, since there are a lot of steps and put lots of assertions in. So like after each step, once I get to the point where it's OK, it's doing something that I'm eyeballing it and it looks right, 
now put in a little assertion at that point in the script that makes sure that I don't then break it with a, a future change. And that basically serves the same purpose as putting a test in. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's straight in the code. It's just putting that expectation straight in the code. Nice. There's a, an old bit of advice from, I think, Code Complete. Might have been writing solid code. Both of the books came out in the, in the 90s. And one of them has a really good piece of advice where in C and C++, you can do like if def debug. And if you're compiling, you know, debug, uh, the debug version of your code, this block of code will execute. And there was a pattern that a lot of programmers fell into where they would write the method to run one way in production, and then they would write debug code that did something different to try and explore. And so this book came out and basically said, don't do that. Always, always, always in production and debug, always execute through all of the production code. Then if you stick debug code in, all the debug code should do is cross-check what the production code did so that when you take the debug code away, you don't have a broken program. You haven't actually removed something that, oops, you actually needed that in production. And that sounds a lot like that, right? Like the, you know, this is this long script and I'm not going to test it, but yeah, I'm going to jam an assertion right here in the middle of it so that if I change my assumptions, there's at least one fence post that I will hit my, you know, crack my knee on as I go past it. Exactly. Yeah. So I have a kind of a weird, weird confession. And I don't know if this is a proper confession because I'm kind of proud of it. Uh, is that <laughs> bad? But you were talking about logging. I am obsessive about making logs look pretty. Like to the point of like, I will, I will drive my pairs crazy with Oh, hang on, hang on. Let me just align this text or let me, let me draw a box around this. I, I don't do the ASCII art so much anymore, but things like, you know, lining up all of the log, log statements coming out of this function must begin with the method name and a colon and a space and then the message so that when I'm, and I say I'm proud of this one because my job has entailed processing log files so often that it bothers the crud out of me when I see a log file where just any object in the system can just blat anything it wants to to the console or to standard error without any consideration for, you know, the the, the programmer who wrote it was testing something and they knew where that message was coming from and then they shipped it. And now I'm running the program and I just see this message that says got value 43 and I want to take a hammer and just go smash the knuckles of whoever wrote that code. Is that bad? Dave, smash. (laughs) Dave, smash your knuckles. (laughs) I I think we all have our quirks that way, uh, you know, with different things. I mean, if you're if you're spending an extra two minutes, you know, to get it wrangled around the right way out of, you know, the hour or so that you spent writing the code, I don't think it matters. Yeah. And it, and it what, can pay what, off what later 15 on. Fifteen minutes. <laughs> That's about where my level of obsession comes in. Is is I will sometimes spend ten fifteen minutes tweaking, and my my partner will say, "Dude, we need to move on." And I'm like, "No, no, no, no. This we are leaving this for posterity. So it needs to be intuitive. It needs to be." And the part where this becomes a confession is sometimes. It's not for posterity. Sometimes it's a it's a debugging message, and I will just habitually start cleaning it up and making it pretty. And that that's a habit I have to try and break myself of sometimes. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're spending 15 minutes out of the hour, is that one quarter of the value? No, no, I mean, like 15 minutes once a day, 15 minutes out of the day, 15 minutes out of every other day. Yeah, it's, I'm not spending 25% of my time, yeah. you know, futzing with print statements, but. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. the thing, right? For me, is it comes back to the value. Is the amount of time you're spending worth the value that you're adding? Yeah. Yeah. And I will say one other thing. If you write stuff to standard error or to standard out in the middle of my RSpec run and you mess up my pretty green dots with your stupid trash, <laughs> I will find you. Yeah, that's like and it will that, not that's, those dots are, are our fix, those nice clean dots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are okay. our fix. <laughs> Even though I have sometimes distressingly low test coverage, so it's not really as good a fix as it. As it should. Yeah, well, you know, three dots is not a nice as, as nice a fix as two thousand dots. It really isn't. <laughs> it's just a, yeah. a whole screen of green dots. It's just like, oh, yeah. see, the thing is, it's really easy to add dots. Like, I could, I could write you a website that'll just output dots if, if you want. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I could totally see Dave just staring okay. at this website, and then his eyes roll up into the back of his head, uh-huh. and he's just like. <laughs> I'm gonna go reg. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna go buy my unit tests pass dot com, and all it is is just green dots <laughs> for when you just can't take it anymore. Yep, you need yep. that little endorphin rush. That's right. <laughs> Red so, green aw yeah dot com. <laughs> I I have another confession, and that is is that sometimes I have long long time running tests, like the tests run longer than Dave's seven seconds. Sometimes yeah. it, they run a few minutes. Um, usually it's integration tests, and usually then I'll write some spec, like rake spec, you know, not integrations or whatever, so that I can get that fixed. But, you know, on occasion, it just they're just slow, and I just let them run anyway. I've taken to I'm, – I'm working on a, a rescue project right now where it's rails and it's slow, and the test suite – Test suite was, oh, three to five minutes and I've gotten it down to two minutes, but that's, it's still way too slow. And one of the things that I've done is I've taken to writing in my, in my spec file, I will write context with data setup, tag, you know, slow equals true. And then all of the stuff that uses fixtures and factories and touches the database, um, and these are model tests. They're unit tests. And to my thinking, they should run very fast. And if you touch, you know, a factory, loading a factory is slower than just creating an object and saving it. And that is much slower than just creating an object in memory and not saving it to the database. And, you know, you, you end up losing like 40, 50 milliseconds every time you try and write one of these objects. And if you're testing an object that because of the way Rails you know, the, the classes can find each other very easily. You have an employee class that can talk to its time card class, that can talk to its task unit class, that can talk to the job class, that can talk to the supervisor class, which can talk to the employee class again. So all of a sudden that when you say context with data set up and then you have a, a string of let statements that create these factory objects, that factory takes 500 milliseconds to run. And that's enough that you will get wrapped in a context that says slow. And I like it when you print out the documentation that you get this thing that says, you know, testing this class and here's all this stuff. And then you get this with data set up and then you have stuff like, you know, it loads the correct file and it does that and that sort of thing. That took me way too long to make my point, didn't it? Sorry. 
let's just to tag my the last two minutes with slow. <laughs> <laughs> Verbose. Yeah. That would be awesome if you could play back this podcast with like tags not slow and it would just like cut out all of my stories. <laughs> Actually that would be awful. Nobody please invent that. <laughs> my classes are getting kind of long too. I gotta confess that. I'm not sure what to do about it. Except extract them out, but here's a confession for you. I don't always know when to uh I don't know always know where to draw the lines. Amen. Yeah. I, <laughs> it it's hard. I mean, sometimes you have a pain and it's very apparent. I gotta I gotta extract something out of here. You know. It's doing two jobs and these are the two jobs, so I'm gonna extract one. But sometimes it's just it, it feels long and it's a little bit hard to keep it all in your head, but there's not really a clear way to do it. Or even if you should. Yeah. We had Sandy Metz on to talk about her book and I remember saying that I was having trouble with some aspect of my design and Sandy, she didn't even blink. She was just like, you're not breaking things down enough. And I'm like, but I break them down. I break them down. I break them down. And now I've got all these pieces everywhere. And and I was explaining this problem and Sandy just kind of, I, we do this as an audio call. We don't see, have video, but I could, in my mind, I could see her smiling. And the answer was, you're not breaking things down enough. Break them down one or two or seven more layers deep, and all of a sudden it will just start work or start working. And she's kind of right, but obviously I think you've hit it on the head. Like like sometimes I don't know where to draw that line. Uh, you wrote a what did you call it? An active record fable? Yeah, I just wrote a blog post talking about. Well, it's a long story. Basically, how there are actually a whole lot of patterns that go into what we now refer to as the active record library. And, you know, it's, it, it encompasses altogether. It encompasses many, many more things than active record. Right. I loved the fact that you, you pointed out that you had peeled off, you were writing in your own code and you were peeling off all these patterns and you had these two patterns conflated. And how did you put it? You were almost literally writing the code with the keyboard in one yeah, hand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, patterns. so, I mean, and a Apple, with the other, right? On an app I'm working on, just kind of for my own edification, my own curiosity, I've been doing it without any any kind of pre-existing ORM framework. I've just been writing what I need as I need it, um, as little as I need to do the kind of object relational mapping that I actually need in my application. And uh, I've been trying to be very inspired by principles of ob- enterprise application architecture. Um, and so I've you know, been kind of like, Dave said, I've been writing with keyboard in one hand and the book in the other. You know, every time I need to add a little bit extra, I'm like, okay, let me look up the appropriate pattern from this book and, and uh, see if I can implement it in the, in the correct way and see what that buys me. Because often the decisions in those book, in those patterns are, you know, subtle, but, uh, but important. And even so, the other day I was looking at my code. I was trying to reason about my code. It was hurting my head. I was like, how did I let this very, small scale lightweight you know process result in code that i cannot reason through and it suddenly occurred to me holy crap i managed to jam a data mapper and a repository together without even thinking about it like i have a class here which totally mixes together the concerns of mapping record columns to domain attributes and the concern of selecting subsets of rows and iterating over them. And those are very different. They both have a lot of code that needs to be dedicated to them. And when you put it all together, you get 200 plus lines of code that is, well, it's conflated. 
sounds like your confession is I use the Active Record library. No, I, well, no. So there's actually a big difference between Active Record the library and the Active Record pattern. Yeah, I, I understand that. What I'm saying okay. is, is that you know the things that he's saying that you know have all these extra things going on. Active Record does a lot of that stuff. It's easy to, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy, surprisingly easy to arrive at mixed concerns. I guess that that much I'm saying. Yeah. And it's surprisingly difficult to tease them apart sometimes and difficult to know sometimes whether it's worth the time to tease them apart or work around the problems in my design and, you know, work on getting another feature out. And that's a, that's a real toughie. Yeah. And that's not, you know, it's not even, I'm not even sure I can call that refactoring now. I mean, granted, I'm still only talking about like a 200 line class, but I'm not sure I can legitimately call it fixing that refactoring because I think it's, it might wind up be cl being closer to a rewrite, a small rewrite, but. A bit of a rewrite. Object design is hard. Objects are hard. So, okay, <laughs> so I, I have a confession to throw out here. I talked about this with James and uh, in, in private uh, last week, and I didn't come to a good resolution on this. I have a confession, and this is, here's something that I don't know really how to test. Uh, I, I tweeted a, a joke about how I believe that the bane of all computer science is letting objects talk to each other. And that, of course, was a joke, but it was inspired by a genuine thought, which is, I seriously wonder if the bane of all the programming that we do, right? By we, I mean, all of you are wonderful listeners, right? Most of us are web programmers. Some of us are doing backend programming. Most of us are doing object-oriented programming. Here is what I think is an implicit problem. We've been soaking in it for years. And I'm just now starting to realize that it's been hurting this entire time. And that is objects that know how to find each other. Objects that know each other by name is a real problem. And here, here's what happened. I'm just going to confess this, that I still don't have a good solution for this. I had an object that was a has many belongs to relationship with another object. And I removed the belongs to and my tests broke. And that was great. I removed the has many and nothing broke in my code. And James had the, the right answer, which was, well, obviously there's a, there's a missing test, right? Something in your test suite that isn't executing that has many relationship. And the realization, like if you're doing TDD and you've got like a person, you have a, you have a, a people table and you have an address table and, you know, a person has many addresses, say when you're doing TDD, or we'll, we'll step back. There, there's, there's this, you want to relate. You've got person, which is basically an empty class, and you've got addresses, which is basically an empty class. And you want to say address belongs to person, person has many addresses. How do you test that, just that, without duplicating the has many? I mean, I, the only, every way I can think to test this is to sit down and write a test that basically says it should have many addresses. Person should have many addresses. And that to me feels like I'm duplicating, I'm, I'm going to end up duplicating my entity relationship diagram, my ERD, right. in my spec suite. That's, it's, it's pure duplication. I can't see any reason for that to be there. And yeah, James had the argument that, yeah, yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like when I first got into private methods, I found out that I, I, I got into some furious arguments with Brian Lyles and with Pat Maddox and with a couple other people. And then at the end of our, our argument, we all kind of 
you know, kind of peeked at each other's poker hand and we all re- we all confessed, I don't write private methods. Like like those of us that were in favor or against it, we just don't write private methods, right? I have started writing private methods since talking with Sandy because now I actually see a reason to have them and why classes should be able to protect some of their behavior from from the outside world. But it, and, and this is relevant to my my current point, which is that if the only way to test that person has many addresses is through some code that exercises a person and talks to that person in a Rails app, the only code that's going to test that is a view. And we never test our views, right? Um, I'll confess to that. I'll confess to that, right? I test every other layer, right? I, I test my models really hard. And then I will sometimes integration test suites of models, controllers, Basically, the only thing I will test there is if I have a really complicated bit of logic. But at the view level, I don't test. And that's what bit me was uh, the website broke because we had a view that was rendering all of these people, basically, and it was trying to render their addresses underneath them. And nothing was exercising that view. So that's my confession is I'm just a bad programmer. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. So my my point to all this is that there's this problem in computer science that the the relationships between objects this this ERD that we draw out this map of the way the objects hang together is really hard to test. Yeah. We can draw all of our little boxes on a napkin and we can write tests to test those boxes. But when you draw a line from one box to another, where do you write the test to test that line? Right, it's it's difficult to test structure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I like to think that most of the time that doesn't matter, like maybe most of the time that's a good thing. Because, you know, if there's a point to object oriented design at all, it's that, you know, it's connecting black boxes together and uh, composing things out of the black boxes. But yeah, I mean, the way you connect them together does uh, have the, you know, net result of your program working or not. So... Yeah, I mean, this this is business logic now, right? We're not, we're no longer testing the mechanics. We're now testing in order to and maybe that's what it is, is you have to go all the way up to true business logic and say, in order to bill a customer, I have to be able to find her address so that I can send her a bill. And given a person, I should be able to find their address. And yeah, that's starting to sound like an integration or accepted test, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, maybe an integration test. I mean, I guess that's, that is where some of my integration tests come from is yeah. testing that, those kinds of relationships. So there's a confession that I don't really have time to to get into because I don't I'm so eyeball deep into it that I'm I don't know that I understand it well enough. But uh, somebody wrote a, a famous blog post a while back called "Integration Tests Are a Scam," and I was offended by the title. I just thought it was so obnoxious that I like I'm not even going to read the blog post. And then some people that I really respect came back later and said, "No, you really ought to go read this because." There are some pretty good points in here, and I went and read it. And I'm like, no, this is this is very this is a lot like the TDD debate with DHH and Kent Beck, where there's some people that have got some pretty strongly polarized views here. I'm now circling back to this with a much more open mind about how would this affect if integration tests are a scam? How does this affect my design? And I've been pushing really hard to do all of my unit testing, and I, I freely admit that unit test not equal integration test. But I've been pushing really hard to follow Sandy's rules for testing, right? If it's a, if it's a public message, you should be able to send it, send the object that message. If it's a, you know, if it's a getter, you should be able to public, you know, get it. And if it sends a message, you should 
inject that dependency and assert that the message was sent, but you should not let it send that message out. You should test the class completely in isolation. And I was really nervous going into that about being able to test trust that my objects all hang together correctly. And that's kind of where I'm at right now is trying to trust that my, my unit tests all together work well enough to catch this. And, you know, as I said a couple of days ago, it wasn't enough. I, I, I removed the, the belongs to and a test broke, but I removed the has money and nothing changed. Yeah. And I think with the tools that we have, it's all too easy to have tests that don't really check um, that they all hang together. I mean, I think things are moving forward slowly. Uh, if you're going to be using mocks and stubs, it's, it's very exciting that our spec three ships with verified doubles, which will complain if you try to, uh, you know, send them a message that the thing they're a double of doesn't respond. Yeah. To. Yeah. Um, like stub versus stub bang. Well, it's not those aren't the, they don't use those terms. Oh, OK. Yeah, basically, there, there are new class doubles and instance doubles and one other kind of double, object doubles. And you basically, you're giving the double an example of what it's a standing in for, whether a class or an instance. And you're saying, this is what you're standing in for. So if I, if my test sends you a message that doesn't look like something that your real object could respond to, uh, either in terms of the, the message name or the, the arity, then please explode because mm-hmm. I am writing tests that are lies. Um, nice. Yeah. And, Please and that, explode because I am writing tests that are lies. I am so happy. I am so happy that that is a sentence that just got said. <laughs> <laughs> Punish me for my sins. Is what yes. Here. Yep. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess I mostly, at this point, I mostly rely on the fact that I also write higher level tests. You know, if nothing else, I try to write uh, some acceptance tests. And, you know, if, if it, not everything hangs together, then that'll usually make an acceptance test blow up, but not always. Well, I've, I've got to take off pretty soon, so I'm going to push us toward the picks. I do have one okay. final confession, and that is that I like Hamel, but uh, I don't think you guys have anything to say about that. So <laughs> I, have, communicating I have a confession. I have a confession. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's let's go ahead and do the picks. Uh, Avdi, do you want to start us the picks? Oh, sure. I have. Well, I know I have one tech pick, which is I uh, started playing with Circle CI the other day. I, I wanted to set up, finally get around to setting up some uh, continuous integration and continuous deployment for a project of mine. And uh, actually, thanks to a thread on Parley, I found out what some of the the currently popular alternatives are. And one of the ones that came up several times was Circle CI, so I, I checked them out, and it was really—I've been really, really impressed so far. The setup is is really great. It does a lot of nice sniffing to determine what sort of project you have. My project's not completely normal because it's not just like a, a standard Rails application. It's it's a Sinatra app, and and uh, you know I, most stuff in it is hand rolled, but for the most part, the auto configuration worked pretty well. Everything was easy to configure. The speed is good. The speed is great, actually. The the live feedback as the test progresses, the setup and the test progressives is really slick. And uh, and it has some interesting features that I'm not sure if other providers have, like the SSH mode, where basically you can turn SSH mode on and it'll run through the tests and then... I think if there's a failure, or maybe maybe regardless, I'm not sure. I think if there's a failure, it'll give you an SSH command, a pre-configured SSH command that you can punch in 
to SSH into the, the testing box that test was run on and poke around and figure out, you know, like if the tests are run, are passing locally but failing on the CI server, you can poke around and figure out exactly what's going on because you can actually run commands and stuff uh, on the CI server. So, yeah, so far I've been really impressed by that. And it also has some nice integrations with like Heroku and stuff so you can push once the tests pass. Uh, also, their support has been quite responsive. I don't think I have anything else. All right, David, what are your picks? I have two weird picks today that are going to involve uh, you, the listener, really bending your brain. And uh, I would love some feedback from you on these. The first one is is all for you to think about really hard. It's the just world hypothesis or the just world fallacy. You can look for these on Wikipedia. And essentially, this is a cognitive bias that we all have. And even if you know you have it, you are still subject to it. The just world hypothesis, uh, you know what? We don't have 20 minutes for me to go into the whole long thing. I'll give you the super short version. It is that we all at some level believe that the universe is ordered and is a meritocracy and that if you do good things, then good things should happen to you. And this leads to a really dark bias towards what happens when something really bad happens to someone, we are actually biased to assume that they must have been a bad person. And it is a fascinating fallacy. It is well worth the read. And it's worth thinking about when you think unkindly about the programmer who made the awful mess that you are cleaning up in the code. Because <laughs> even, even if you know about the just world hypothesis, you are very likely and this is serious stuff. I mean, it is funny, um, but it also it also goes all the way down to the very serious level stuff. Like women who get raped are far more likely to be judged as deserving of the abuse that they received because of the just world hypothesis. Even by people who know about the just world hypothesis, they are that much more likely to to make that kind of judgment. This is serious, heavy, heavy duty philosophy stuff. Please take a look at it. It's really, really worth contemplating. My second pick is a combination pick and request for a pick. I'm going to pick something that is kind of, I want to say it's a timeless classic, except that it has to do with computer graphics. And you can't take anything in computer graphics and say it's a timeless classic. So I'm going to give you my pick, and then I'm going to ask all of the readers to write back to at Ruby Rogues on Twitter so. Sign up for Parlay and post your ideas there. I'll start a topic there, and uh, I'll put a note in my file to start this topic next uh, Wednesday when this show airs. My pick is the Foley and Van Dam book. This is back from the era, I don't know if we still do this, if the kids do this nowadays, but back in my day, when there was a really, really good textbook, you referred to it by the names of the authors. And this book was written by Foley and Van Dam and Finer and Hughes, but who can be bothered to remember more than two names? The Foley and Van Dam book is a book called Computer Graphics, Principles, and Practice, and it was written in the mid-90s. So this is before the NVIDIA GeForce came out. This was before 3D hardware transformations. This was before shaders. This was before like anisotropic filtering. This was before any hardware existed. This was written back in the day when you had control over every single pixel on your screen and you wanted to build a ray tracer. And this this topic came up when I was talking about writing a, a Fong shading ray tracer in a single tweet. And James and I 
uh, I don't know if I picked that for the show. I'll pick that as well. Um, James and I, uh, spent about an hour on YouTube, 45 minutes on YouTube talking about how to write a ray tracer in a single tweet and make it work. And that was kind of a fun discussion. And all of the tricks that I used in that tweet came out of this book. The reason why this is a reverse pick is that it is now the 21st century and we have things like 3D hardware pipelines and lighting models and shaders and, you know, all that's, you know, fun vertex manipulation, Guga stuff. And I am curious to know if there is a modern equivalent, you know, all in one textbook. It can be, it can be a, a college graduate level textbook. I'm okay with that. I'm not afraid of that. But I would love to hear people's suggestions for what is the best book that will take you from here's how to set the color on a pixel all the way through here's how to take a convex hull in geometry and tessellate it and shove it down the OpenGL pipeline and get back a rendered scene of exactly what you want to see. So that's my pick is a request for something new and updated and modern in computer graphics. And those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks here. So the first pick I have is a game I've been playing the last little while. I, I tend to, uh, what I'll do is I'll work for about two hours and then I'll stop the time clock and I'll go play a game of Hearthstone because it takes about 10 to 20 minutes for me to play it. So it's a computer game, but you play cards like Magic or Pokemon. And all of the different characters and stuff are basically classes of, of creatures or heroes or whatever from Warcraft. And uh, anyway, it's it's a pretty fun game. I've really been enjoying it, and uh, so I'll pick that. I've also been reading a couple of books here. Um, I just want to make sure I haven't picked them before. Uh, the first one, I'm pretty sure I haven't, is called Winning by Jack Welch, and I'm really I'm really enjoying it. It's it's just been a terrific book, and he was the CEO of uh, GE, and so he talks a lot about the strategies and tactics and and things that he used, and some of the principles you need to live by or act by if you're running a company. And I, I've just been really enjoying it and the thought processes behind it. The other one that I've been reading, is, or I finished last week, is Entree Leadership by Dave Ramsey. And it's another one, he talks more, I think it applies to smaller companies a little bit better than Jack Welch's book, but uh, still there's a lot of stuff there that is really terrific. And he talks about how he built up his team and how they run their company and uh, the values and things that they have there. And again, just a terrific book. So if you're if you're looking at building a company or becoming a better manager or things like that, or if you are in a startup and you're wondering about like getting acquired and things like that, uh, both of these books are excellent resources. So um, I'm going to pick both of those, and that's all I got. So we'll wrap up the show. I don't remember what our new book club book is, so... Refactoring, Ruby Edition. That's right. So we will be reading that. I don't think we have a scheduled and, date yet. And Chuck has a confession about whether or not he's started reading the book club book. <laughs> that would be a no. <laughs> I haven't started reading the book club book because I'm a terrible person. But anyway, so we'll wrap up the show. Thank you all for listening. We will catch you all next week. Go leave us a review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that. And uh, that's it. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous deployment service that just works. Set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for a lot of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own servers. 
Start with their free plan. Setup only takes three minutes. Code shift. Continuous deployment made simple. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics and are an active part of the Ruby community. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.